Peter, I don't know who that was. I'll talk to you at the end. That's great. If you've got your, um, if you've got your Bibles, uh, put one finger in Hebrews chapter 11 and another finger into Ephesians chapter 4. Um, as Matt said, my name's Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church Hastings and it's my privilege to lead the team. Next Sunday is a big Sunday for us um, for one particular reason and, and that reason is it's Matt's last preach with us. As an elder here at King's, I'm sure we will have him back to preach. Um, once he's got to grips with Putney Church, where he's going with Helen and the children to, uh, to, to lead in West London. But it is his last, um, last preach with us. On the 27th of March, so that is a week on Sunday, no, a month on next, about five weeks' time, we're going to be saying goodbye to Matt and Helen and the children all together. Um, they're going to be with us. We're going to have some food after the meeting, which we're providing. I think you've received emails requesting you bring bottles and puddings and things like that. I think some entertainment has been arranged as well. And so, to the 27th of March, is going to be a different type of morning um, that will include lunch afterwards. So, again, put that in your diary. Free lunch for any of you who turn up. And, and also, of course, we're saying goodbye to Matt and Helen. Um, mustn't, forget, mustn't forget that as well. Let's, let's just pray. Lord, I thank you for just a wonderful sense of your presence as we worship you this morning. I thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for reminding us of all we have in you. Lord, it's, it's so brilliant, Lord, when we sing these songs, when we remind ourselves of the wonderful position we find ourselves in as your children, Lord, we're, we're just amazed. Lord, we, we never grow tired of celebrating you and enjoying the, the richness of the grace we've received. Lord, we, we thank you for promises about having to let our belt out because you've got good things for us in the future. Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, for that, that hymn that Ali brought. What was it? Uh, was it a million sins or whatever it was? But, Jesus, you've crushed them all. Ah, oh, the wonder, Lord, of your grace. Lord, I pray as I speak this morning, would you please direct me and guide me. I pray I'd be in step with you. Lord, I pray that this would be a morning that brings glory to your name. Lord, that builds the church stronger. That displays something of your splendour. Lord, we pray. Lord, I ask you, Lord, if it's, if it's your will this morning, I pray would you heal the sick. Lord, those that have come this morning just, just under the weather or, or not very well at all, I pray in Jesus' name for your healing power to be released. Lord, we look to you for your grace and your mercy in this. Amen. Excellent. I'm, I'm well prepared this morning. Um, I've put lots of effort into my prep. I think I've probably got a few too many notes. So... 
we, we, you know, we're, we'll probably just have to see how it goes. I also want to show a DVD this morning as well, which is quite provoking. I hope that none of you find it offensive, um, although some of you may. Um, but I feel the message within it is very strong and very powerful, and it, and it stirred me. I've, I've probably watched it about half a dozen times as I've ummed and ahed about whether to uh, show it or not. But, but it's very, very powerful, and it's, it's by a guy called Darren, Darren Patrick, who is speaking at the movement camp, the men's camp in May. And I wanted to show it to you, one, because I feel it fits in so well with the message I want to share, but also because it gives you gentlemen a taster of, of what you will be hearing and what you will be encountering um, when you come on that camp. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 11. And uh, we've, you, you won't remember it, some of you, but actually I've preached on Ephesians chapter 4 twice just before Christmas. And we uh, started in verse 1 and we looked at the importance for a healthy church, that there is unity in a healthy church. And we were looking at how important it is that we are completely humble and gentle, that we're patient, that we bear with one another in love, that we make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And, and we looked at that. And then we moved on and we looked at diversity. So we looked at unity and then we looked at diversity. And we looked at how important it is that God brings together a church that is diverse both in ages and backgrounds of the people that gather. Because it's only as we all use the gifts and abilities that God has given that the church will be built strong. But not only that, we also saw there was diversity in the gifts that God gives to the church in forms of leadership to keep it strong. And we saw that God sends apostles and prophets and evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers. And it's very important that any local church has a mixed and varied gifting working into it if it's to be healthy and strong. And I'm sure for many of you that as, as you come and we have different men um, with different giftings coming, you may have your favourites. You may particularly like Adrian Holloway when he comes with his evangelistic edge and what he's able to do as he equips us for others of you, you may prefer more of a John Groves flavour as he comes with his solid teaching of the words. Or for some of you, you may like Julian Adams. A bit more on the edge and we never quite know what's going to happen. But there's always a life of God there. Or maybe Terry Virgo when he came and he brought such a fatherly foundation-laying word a few weeks ago. And actually, in a sense, it doesn't really matter so much our preferences. It's important that we have mixed gifting coming in because that's, that they, they're foundation-laying gifting. They change us, they impart something to us. And we move on and we see the reason God sends those gifts, and we pick it up in verse 12, is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, and be blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is head, that is Christ. 
From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And this morning, um, the plan is that I want to pick up really the second half of chapter 4 and I've been, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we looked at... Um, I'm looking at the notes now. What did we look at? We looked at unity and diversity. Now we're going to be looking at maturity. We're going to look at what is the church to become as we grow together. What are some of the signs of a church that is growing in maturity? And I imagine a church is a bit like a family. If you look at a big, broad, extended family, sometimes when we're at, we're at Christmas, we're maybe with my parents or Chloe's parents, when, when you come into the front room, it's chaos. Because you can have children from the very youngest age there, right the way up to maybe mature grandparents or even great-grandparents in the room. And some, some with the grandparents, they can't quite work out what's going on. It's all happening too quickly and yet you've got the children running around and you've got dinner happening and you've got, you've got just a span. And church can be a little bit like that and we're all in different phases but the important thing is we are growing in maturity. And if actually within that sort of family context everyone was acting maybe like a three-year-old, it wouldn't quite work, would it? For, for starters, I'd get hungry because there'd be no lunch on the table. But, but, but equally, you've got a broad range. And, and in a sense, that's, that's part of who we are as a family. We've got a broad range in ages. We've got a broad range in backgrounds. Even a broad range in nationalities, which is absolutely wonderful. That's the grace of God to us. But there's also a broad range in, in maturity too. Some of you are maybe here because you are, you're on the Alpha at the moment. You've maybe just made a confession of faith in Christ and all of this is very new to you. Others of you have maybe saved, been saved, been a Christians for a decade, two decades, three decades, four decades. Anyone been a Christian for 40 years? Five decades? Six decades? Very good. I won't even... Uh, seven decades? Okay, that's a, that's a target for you, okay? And we see that. So, 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 so we see that, a growing maturity across the church. Now, if you've got your finger in Hebrews chapter 11, turn with me to it. I hope that this will link together, but it may not, in which case you'll just have to bear with me. But it's something that I was as I was preparing... Um, or really finalising my preach last night, I just felt God reminded me of, because I think the two are linked together. The words won't come up on the screen behind me. It says, By faith Moses, so that's verse 24 of Hebrews 11, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be Ill, ill-treated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. And there are a lot of treasures in Egypt. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him 
who is invisible. And if you just go with me on this just for a moment, the Bible to me seems to be full of odd stories about odd people. I don't know if you've noticed that. They do odd things. And, and, and Moses is, is just one of those odd people really. If you think about Moses, he was the grandson by adoption of the Pharaoh who was the king of Egypt, probably one of the most uh, powerful nations on the planet at that time. He had everything going for him. He had fame, he had status, he had power, he had money, he had the treasures of Egypt at his disposal, he had security, he'd lived with it for about 40 years. He'd enjoyed it for about 40 years and then he turned his back on it all. He turned his back on it all and he says, let, let me read it, he says, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value, sorry, of disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He had it all and yet he had an encounter with God that flipped his world view over. All the things that we might quite like. Do you know what I mean? A bit of financial security, I do not need to worry anymore. Status and prestige, I've, he, he, he had it all there and yet he was gripped with God where he realised that all of these things are not bad in themselves were of little value compared to his relationship, his knowing God. He realised suddenly they weren't worth as much as he thought they had been worth before. Suddenly he got a view of something that gripped him, his, his goals changed. One minute he was here thinking all these things are good things, this is what I'm living for. But suddenly, I don't know if it was a suddenly, actually, I wonder if actually it was over a period of time, God gripped him and changed him and he suddenly realised that something unseen was worth more than what is seen. Something that was to come, something that he did not yet have was of greater value than all of the treasures of Egypt, all the things that he could enjoy here and now. Something had gripped him. His goals changed. Suddenly his goal in life changed from maybe acquiring more money or getting more wives or yielding more power to something that was unseen and something that was to be despised in this present world. If I was to ask you a question, and this is the question, I wonder how you would answer it. What is your goal in life? If you're putting in some coordinates into your sat-nav to take you on a journey, what, what would be the coordinates you'd put in? Where are you heading in life? What are the things you really want to achieve or obtain in this life. Now, for some, I guess, you may 
feel that you haven't got any coordinates in. As I'm asking the question, you suddenly realise that. I'm, I'm just living life. But I wonder, what are the things that are shaping you? In the verses that we just read in Ephesians, Paul wrote to the Ephesian church that they could attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I wonder if that's the goal, if that's the coordinates you put into your sat-nav, that you would attain, attain to all the fullness, all the fullness, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I wonder, is it your ambition to be like Jesus? Is it your goal to increasingly be transformed that your life and his are more and more on the same page? I wonder, is it your ambition to give your life to something that will last forever? To invest your life into seeing others' lives totally and completely transformed? Are you involved in spending on something that gives eternal security? Are you investing into the bride of Christ for whom the King of glory will one day return? You see, Moses caught a glimpse at the stuff in this present age. That is good, it's fine. Enjoy it while you've got it. But that shouldn't be our goal. Our goal is that we would obtain to all the fullness, the full measure of Christ. Where are you heading? What are the coordinates in your sat-nav? I just want to break this passage down into three sections and I'm going to go through them quite quickly because I, I feel maybe it'll be the, um, the sort of end that I just want to focus on a little bit more. And the first thing, just looking at what, what, what is it for us to imitate Christ? What is it for us to follow in Christ's footsteps, as it were? And the first thing I notice from this passage, and I notice about Jesus, is this, is that Jesus was fit for purpose. He was fit to serve. There, there was a purpose to which he came. In the NIV it says this in John 17, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. The message says it like this, and I quite like it. I glorified you on earth by completing down to the last detail what you assigned me to do. Let me ask you a question. Are you on God's mission? Are you completing the task down to the last detail what God has assigned for you to do. On the cross, Jesus, some of the last words that he ever said in John 19, what was it he said? It is finished. I've completed. I have finished that for which my Father has sent me. We know, don't we, Jesus didn't come on holiday. He came with purpose. And God has similar plans for us. If you turn back to Ephesians 2 verse 10, it says this about you. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. In verse 12 of the passage that we're looking at here, it says to prepare. Why are apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, all of those men sent to the local church, why are they sent? 
to prepare God's people for? Anyone at the back fancy shouting it out too? That's it. To prepare God's people for works of service. It's not them that do the works of ministry. They're to prepare us to do the works of ministry. That whole prepare is talking about perfecting, to be made fit to serve. It it could also be used of relocating a bone in its socket. Have any of you ever dislocated a bone? Some of you have. It looks painful. As you can tell, I wouldn't play rugby. It would be very unwise for me to play rugby. Unless I was sort of standing in the corner holding the flag bit or something like that, it just wouldn't be good. But when you see some of the guys, when they dislocate their bones and you see the pain that they're in, it's not, their body won't work anymore. They now cannot play rugby. But that whole thing of perfecting, it talks about, um, what is it, to prepare, perfecting. It's putting that bone back into place so that the body can function properly. These men are sent to perfect, to prepare, to put us in place that we can uh, fulfil the things that God has given for us, given us to do. In verse 16 of, the, of, of chapter 4, we're looking at, for him, for to, what does it say? For from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The only way we grow as a church is as everyone does the part that God has given for them to do. Rick Warren says this, you were put on earth to make a contribution. You were not created just to consume resources, to eat, breathe, to take up space. God designed you to make a difference with your life. You were created to add to life on earth, not just take from it. You were created to serve God. Maturity is for ministry. Let me say that again. Growing in maturity, growing in the word of God, and we're going to look at that in a minute, it's important that we know that it's for ministry, it's not an end in itself. We're not designed just to consume one sermon after another and grow fatter and fatter in the word of God, although in a sense it's not a bad stepping stone, but we we are designed to minister. We are designed to let the life of God flow out. In Israel there are two seas, I'm sure many of you have heard this uh, illustration before. One is the Dead Sea, it has no outlet. So it has fresh water flowing in, but because there's no outlet, the water I think just evaporates, it's dead, nothing can live in it. There is no outflow for, for, for the inflow. But at the top of the Jordan, there is the Sea of Galilee. Water comes in, but water also flows out, and that, that sea teems with life. Why? Because there's stuff going into it, but also an outflow. And it's the same in our lives as well. If we just consume sermons, which again isn't a bad thing, it's good that you're here listening to preaching of the word, but if you're not putting it into practice, if you're not working it out, you become very knowledgeable. But it's an unhealthy place to be. God put us here to give out as well as take in. Is one of the values that's underpinned this church since the very beginning is that we're all involved. 
It's not, when you become a member of this church, it changes, or hopefully it's a process of changing, but in a sense what you're saying is no longer that church, it's my church. I'm part of it. I make it better. I make it stronger. The contribution I bring makes a difference. We grow up in order to give out. And as mature Christians, as maturing Christians, as a maturing church, we stop asking who is going to meet my needs and we start asking whose needs can I meet? Where can I get involved? Where can I make a difference? And it's not that, that suddenly no one is there to support you because they are. But it's, it's a flowing in and there's a flowing out to it. So the first thing is that I read from this passage is that as we mature, one of the signs of a maturing church is that they're a serving, ministering, involved church. That we use the opportunities God gives to glorify his name and make a difference in the situations we're in. Now that's here in the context of church, but it's also in Hastings. That God has called you to make a difference in your workplaces, at the school gate, in the places of influence that God has given you. A good friend of mine who's a, who's a member of this church, and I was talking to him, and he said that in any given year, he has the privilege of teaching 200 children about evolution and creation at secondary school level. What influence! What an opportunity to change. So over a five-year period, he gets to teach all 1,000 children in his school evolution and creation. What an amazing opportunity that exists for him. A greater opportunity than I will ever have to come into contact with people that don't believe in Jesus and make a difference in in his environment. And all of you have got opportunities like that to make a massive difference just because God gives you an open door. We're called to minister. We're called to serve. We're called to make a difference in the situations and the environment we find ourselves in. It's not just what happens in here that makes a difference. It's what that happens out there. What happens nine to five where you are. I know some of you are policemen or policewomen. God gives you a great opportunity to influence for good, to shine so bright for him as you come across maybe some of the most uh, challenging people in society. But you can speak louder, you can say something different, you can speak in a different way. School teachers, doctors, nurses, in an amazing way, in the business community, God gives you an opportunity to shine for him in a way that can transform the situations you find yourself in. That's what God's calling you to do. Yes, it's important we gather here, but yes, it's important we make a difference out there as well. Amen? Excellent. But it's important as well that we're shaped by the truth. And this is my second point. We're called to serve, but we need to be shaped by the truth. Let me ask you, what is shaping you? What is shaping you in your life? Now, we all know that if I was to say what should be shaping you, you would all say... Well, not a lot, but (laughs) that was a warm-up. I'll give you another chance. What should be shaping you? Jesus, yep, brilliant. 
The Word of God, the Bible, that's, that's what... If, if you're going to be put through a shape, the shape should be the Bible. But... Let me ask you a question. How long do you spend in the Word of God every week? How, how long do you spend... How much of your creative thought processes do you spend in the Word of God? Because we know, because we're well-educated Christian people, that it should be the Bible that shapes us. But the reality of what does shape us will be the things we give our time and our thought processes to. So if you spend more time watching EastEnders, and there's nothing wrong with EastEnders, but if you spend more time watching EastEnders than in the Word of God, the likelihood is that's having a bigger effect on you than the Bible is. Now we know the Bible is sharper than a double-edged sword, it cuts through, it can penetrate, but we've, we've got to be real. What we take in will affect our ability to minister. Now my good friend Otto here is somewhat of an athlete. He is a very good runner. He knows the importance though of eating well. You see, he can't run if he doesn't eat well. If you were to ask him before a long run what he eats, I'm sure he has a set routine or diet so he knows what the best, thing, the best way to get stuff out of his run is. You see, because if, if he tries to run on an empty stomach, like I've tried to do a couple of times, because I'm not as bright as Otto, you find it doesn't take very long before you're running out of steam. And it's the same with us as well. You see, God's called us to make a massive difference out there and to play our part in here. But if we haven't got a healthy diet in the Word of God, our ability to do that will be severely limited. It's severely limited. And you can know that you have to eat the right things before you go for a run, but the reality of it is, and we all know it, unless you actually eat the right things before you go for a run, you will come a cropper. You've, you've got to do the right things. And it's the same here. It's not, it's not brain surgery or anything like, like that or, or any really clever, clever stuff. It's just common sense in some ways. But many of us don't live with common sense, do we? We, we, we wonder why we find Christian life so difficult, but we're not feeding on the right stuff. See, the Holy Spirit's been given that as we read the Word of God, it comes alive to us. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It, it shapes how we live our lives. The Freedom in Christ Discipleship course, Richard Nan on the front row there, they head it up. It's all about making sure the right truth is inside, that we can live life the right way. It's nothing, it is a course, but ultimately it's just taking truths from the Bible and saying, do you know this? Do you know it first? Do you know it right now? Do you believe it? And as a church, God, I, I do, I absolutely, thoroughly, completely, wonderfully believe God's got wonderful things for us in the future. But our ability to achieve and push into the things God has got for us will be directly linked to how far down into him we grow how far down we dig. We need to be men and women who take responsibility and grow in the Word of God. Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 4, man does not live 
by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, it's an odd phrase, isn't it? But just as you would not think about trying to live life for any period of time without eating, in our Christian walk we must be men and women who are hungry, are passionate for the Word of God. Now, if you're going to be shaped by the Word of God, three very quick things that you need to do. The first thing is, you need to accept its authority. You need to accept the fact that the Bible has authority. It's God's Word. Wisdom is found within it. Which means that its authority stands above culture, what everyone else is doing. It stands above tradition. We've always done it that way. It stands above reason. It seems logical to do something this way and it stands above emotion. I just wanted to do it. It, it, it just felt right to do it this way. We, we, we need to become familiar enough with the Word of God that it stands above those things. And again, I'm sure I would be the same. I'm with you on it. Do we believe the Word of God has got authority? Yes, we do. Of course we do. But it's amazing and I find it in my own life. When I've got a difficulty, when I've got a challenge on, it's not always easy to see what the Word of God is saying because other things pull in. Our emotions, just what we want to do. Some of them are good, but some of them are not good. Tradition. You know, we've only been going as a church about 30 years, but so much of what we do is tradition. You are aware of that, aren't you? I mean, there's a biblical foundation for doing it, but the ways and the forms that we've developed and designed, a lot of it's tradition. And, and they're good traditions, there's nothing wrong with that. But, but the Word of God must stand above any tradition that we have. Reason or culture. So the first thing is we need to, we need to uh, be convinced, we need to accept the authority of the Word of God. The second is we must assimilate its truth. We need to fill our minds with the Bible because it's as our minds are full of the, the Bible, the Holy Spirit can take the truth and apply it to us. And thirdly, we've got to apply its principles. And I think that's the hardest bit. That's the bit I find hardest anyway. I can accept its authority... I can soak myself in the truth, but the hardest bit, and this is where the rubber hits the road, is when I have to apply it to my own life, which means maybe I don't do the things that I want to do, or I go to the places I wasn't planning on going, because God has spoken. Matthew 7, verse 24, Jesus said this, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You've got to hear the word, but also put it into practice. D.L. Moody said this, the Bible wasn't given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. And if the word of God isn't having a direct effect on how we do work, if the word of God isn't having an effect on how we live family life, if the word of God isn't having an effect on how our marriages work, then, then it's not changing our lives. We may be gaining knowledge, but it's not having an effect in how we live our lives. We need to be built solidly on the Word of God. And then verse 14, which I find very interesting from the verses, it says this, Then you will no longer be infants. 
You know, if, if, you, if you allow, what is it, the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, he says, then you will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves. Because we always have waves crashing in our lives. The question is, is do they move us? And blown here and there by every wind of teaching. We need to be a church that grows in biblical conviction. Church, you, you, you need to grow in your understanding of the Word of God. We need to be, in a sense, to, to the measure of our ability, we need to be scholars in the Word of God. We need to understand the truths of the faith. Justification by faith. What it is to be baptised by the Holy Spirit. How, how sanctification works, how we grow in God. Now, when you first become a Christian, all of that is gobbledygook. But actually, we should be men and women who give ourselves to understanding the Word of God. Stretching our minds, becoming convinced of the truth that we're not, we're not moved around by every wind of teaching that we hear off the internet. Every preach we get off God's channel. Some of it's good, some of it's rubbish. To be quite it's just not true. But we need to, as a church, be growing in our understanding of the Word of God. And that doesn't just happen by accident. It happens because we apply ourselves to it. To growing, to understanding, to looking into what the Word of God says. So we are fit to serve. We need to be shaped by the truth. We need to build strong together. All these verses that we've been looking at are set in the context of community. They're set in church. We find Jesus was, uh, was committed to community. You know, if anyone could do it on his own, you'd think it was Jesus. But he gathered 12 men to be with him, to train, to disciple, to release into ministry. Jesus committed himself to community. He poured his life into them. He trusted them, although they sometimes let him down. He served them, although they didn't always follow his example. He taught them, although often they didn't understand what he was saying. He relaxed with them, he worked with them, he travelled with them. They got caught up in God's purposes together. How much more do we need each other? How much more is there an importance of us being together? Rick Warren says this, God wants you to be in regular, close fellowship with other believers so you can develop the skill of loving. God wants you to develop the skill of loving. Love cannot be learned in isolation. Although I'm sure, you know, sometimes I wish that were the case. You have to be around people. Irritating, imperfect, frustrating people. That's how you learn how to love. That's what makes us different to everyone out there is because we can love in those situations. We have God's love poured out into our hearts. Do you know what? God loves us. And we are irritating, imperfect, frustrating people, but God has lavished his love upon us. And then he says, go and do likewise. Go and love in the same way. Liz, can we show the DVD, please?
I'm standing in a museum that used to be a church. In 1887, Pastor Henry and his wife Grace planted this church in a one-room schoolhouse just down the road. And in 1888, they were able to build this building. And they passed on their love for this community because of the gospel to a generation. And things were going really well. But two generations after this church was planted, it died. And you can see the pictures behind me of the faithful members of this congregation. And many of them lie in the graveyard behind the church. This church had a man crisis. It was men who made this church come alive, and it's probably men who caused this church to die. In churches, when men stop investing in younger men, younger men stop caring. That's probably what happened to this church, and that's definitely what's happening in our churches. Older gentlemen do not know how to finish well. They don't know how to invest. And so middle-aged men don't know how to stay married. They don't know how to stay connected to the hearts of their children. And so younger men don't even want to be men. And so younger men are prolonging their adolescence. And they're doing this residentially. Guys in their 20s and early 30s, a third of them live with their parents. That's a 100% increase in the last 20 years. They're doing it professionally. Men 18 to 42 will change jobs 11 times. They're doing it recreationally. The average age of video game user is 35 years old. And so when these men finally stop fondling the controller, they fondle themselves. Every second of every day, $3,000 is spent on pornography. Every second. We need better men, which means we need better pastors. We need pastors who are not boys, but are men. Pastors who are not trying to prolong their adolescence, but pastors who are trying to be the men that God has called them to be. They are qualified men in their character. They are called men to serve God's church. They are determined men. They are dependent men. They are tough men. They're able to take a punch. They're able to handle circumstances. They're tender men. They're able to love their wives and love their kids and to teach their church to love their community. Tragically, the last time the gospel was preached from this pulpit to this church was 1957. Three to 4,000 churches this year will close just like this church. Why? Because the story and the glory of the church becomes bigger than the story and glory of God. See, the, the men and women who planted this church, they actually believed this stuff. They actually believed that Jesus lived a perfect life, that, that he died a brutal death, and that he rose again, triumphing over sin and death. They believed it. And because they believed it happened, they believed it had implications on their life, that their sin could be forgiven, that they could have a new identity, and that they could be sent on mission with this God who is on mission. But the reality is most Christians are not on mission. A recent poll said that 60% of all Christians felt no obligation whatsoever to share their faith. Now the temptation for us pastors is to beat the sheep with a stat like that in our sermons. But here's the reality, guys. They're simply imitating and following our example. We need a glimpse of the God who is on mission. My friend Dave was meeting with a consultant who asked him this question. Dave, why do I have a bigger dream for your church and your city than you do? 
And I don't know about you, but I don't want anyone to have a bigger dream for my church and my city than me. And I don't want to build a museum. I want to be a part of a movement. Quite provoking. Uh, quite a provoking short, short DVD there. It was a, um, I think, a promotional DVD for pastors, and yet I felt, although I'm a pastor, as I was watching it, and I listened to it a number of times. Although there's bits that make me wince as he speaks, I think the truth and the provocation contained within it can speak to us all. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt Not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Let's stand and we're going to pray. Lord, I thank you that you are catching us up in your mission. Lord, I thank you... Your mission isn't isn't about us getting more comfortable. It's not about just seeing a few more folk turn up on a Sunday morning. Lord, but it's it's seeing our communities transformed by the power of the Gospel. It's about seeing churches established that are vibrant and full of life and glorify your name. Lord, full of people who are totally convinced of the truth. They don't just know the truth, but they're convinced of it and they live in the good of it as well. You know, that phrase he said in in the DVD, you know, they they actually believe this stuff. And it affected how they live their lives. They planted churches because they believe that stuff. They shared their faith because they believe that stuff. And we say, Lord God, our passion is to see our communities transformed by the Gospel. Lord, we say... We are available to you as a church. Lord, use us as you will. Direct us as you will. Lord, in our streets, in our schools, in our workplaces, Lord, we thank you. You have got works of service that you prepared in advance for us to do. Lord, we say we're available for you, both as individuals but corporately, that your name would be glorified. But we say as well, Lord, we won't settle for just knowing the truth. We want to be shaped and transformed by the truth so that it is seen in how we act, how we behave, how we love our wives, how we raise our children, how we are in the workplace. Lord, that people would see and notice something different. We say, Holy Spirit, would you come? Empower us. Fill us. 
Lord, don't allow us to settle for something that's nice but far beyond what you've got for us. Lord, I pray as a church we would continue to grow in maturity. We'd continue to grow in all the things you've got for us. I pray, Lord, that we would as a people increasingly be growing in your word. Anoint people as they preach on this platform. They preach with a deeper conviction and with a broader and a deeper understanding. Oh Lord, I pray, lead us on in your purposes and plans, I pray. In Jesus' name. And all the saints said? Excellent. Thank you for joining with us. We are praying this evening. Do come and join us. Be active in that. Have a great week and uh, we'll see you next Sunday if I don't see you before.